Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a teaching series called In the Wilderness, a study in the book of Numbers. We're learning how to live with courage and faithfulness on the journey through the wilderness. Thanks for joining us. Well, good morning, Cherry Hills. Today, we're going to start a new series that's going to take us much of the way through summer in the Old Testament book of Numbers. Now, I know what you're probably thinking. Oh, no, not Numbers. And I can relate to that because in years past, when I would try reading through the Bible in a year, it was always right around Leviticus and Numbers when I would think, how long, O Lord, until the New Testament? But something has changed for me about this book. I've come to actually love it. And my hope is, whether you come to love it or not, that by the end of the summer, you can see how important of a book this really is for our lives. A little background on the book of Numbers before we dive into our passage might be helpful. The author of Numbers has traditionally been ascribed to Moses, who wrote what is called the Pentateuch, or the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. A large part of the book of Numbers is preparation for the Israelites to enter into the promised land, and therefore a lot of the chapters are actually dedicated to counting the people of Israel before they set on the move. Thankfully, in this series, we're not going to be reading those chapters where all the numbers take place, but it's those chapters that cause this book to have the unfortunate name of Numbers. I call it unfortunate because actually in Hebrew, in which much of the Old Testament is written, the book of Numbers is actually called In the Desert or In the Wilderness, which seems much more appropriate, and it's where we got the title for our series called Life in the Wilderness. Now, it's given that title in Hebrew because it gives an account of the nation of Israel preparing to enter the promised land, coming to the promised land and refusing to enter it, and then the ensuing 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Now, the key question for us, of course, is how does the book of Numbers relate to our lives still today? Well, I'd argue that it has a lot to do with our lives still today. Right now in history with the COVID pandemic and some of the racial things that are going on in our world. But even in a bigger sense, this book teaches us what it means to follow Jesus in the world today. You see, this world is not our home. Therefore, our lives here on earth are preparing us for our ultimate destination. Therefore, just like the Israelites, we're simply traveling through the wilderness of this world until we too reach the promised land of being in Jesus' presence forever. Paul writes about this in Philippians 3, which I have printed on your notes there, verses 20 and 21. Let me invite you to read it out loud with me. It says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. And so here's how this book relates to us. If you're following along on your notes, in this study in the book of Numbers, we want to learn how to live with courage and faithfulness on the journey, the journey in this world that often includes times of wilderness. You see, just like the Israelites were redeemed from slavery from Egypt, so have followers of Jesus been redeemed from the slavery of sin and death. And so we have much to learn from the people of Israel, from their experiences, from their attitudes as they journeyed in the wilderness. And so without further ado, let's dig into this book, starting in Numbers chapter 6. I'd love for you to turn there in your Bible or your iPad or your iPhone. 
Now understand in number six, God is still delivering his law to the people as preparing them to enter into the promised land as they move from slavery to freedom. And yet in number six, we come across a specific chapter that I would argue teaches us a lot about living as followers of Jesus as we journey through this world as well. Now, before we look at it, let me just invite you to bow your head. And can we just pray as we start this series together that we will learn what God wants us to learn from it? Father, we all recognize that this world isn't exactly how you intended it to be that we find ourselves often in times of wandering and in times of wilderness. You often tell us this world is not our home. And so through this study, what we're asking you is that you would teach us how to wander well, how to live our journey in a way that represents our faith in Jesus Christ. So give us the courage we're asking for and give us the faithfulness we're asking for so we can honor you in all we do. Amen. Let's start by looking at Numbers chapter 6, starting in verses 1 and 2. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, If a man or a woman wants to make a special vow, a vow of dedication to the Lord as a Nazarite. Now I'm going to pause right there in the middle of that sentence, because right away we notice two things. Number one, if you're following, this vow is not a law. It's an invitation for anyone. In other words, right in the middle of giving all these laws, God gives this opportunity for any person in Israel to take a vow, not just the priests or the Levites, but anyone. Notice, any male, any female could voluntarily separate, and that word, that root word in Hebrew is actually where they get the word Nazarite, set apart themselves for a time that they choose. In essence, then, the Nazarite vow is a temporary separation from normal life in order to be devoted to God in a special way. Now, this made the Nazarite a perfect picture of who the nation of Israel had been called to be. They were called to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, Exodus 19, verse 6. God had chosen them uniquely out of all of the other nations of the earth so that he could dwell with them and they could make his glory known to all the other nations, make his name known in the earth. They were to be separate. They were to be distinct from the nations around them. And so essentially, whenever they would see a Nazarite walking around in their camp, they were given this reminder that as God's people, if you're falling on your notes, as God's people, they were set apart to be holy. So what exactly did the vow require of them? Let's look at verses 3 through 8 now. They must abstain from wine and other fermented drink and must not drink vinegar made from wine or other fermented drink. They must not drink grape juice or eat grapes or raisins as long as they remain under the Nazarite vow. They must not eat anything that comes from the grapevine, not even the seeds or skins. During the entire period of their Nazarite vow, no razor may be used on their head. They must be holy until the period of their dedication to the Lord is over. They must let their hair grow long. Throughout the period of their dedication to the Lord, the Nazarite must not go near a dead body. Even if their own father or mother or brother or sister dies, they must not make themselves ceremonially unclean on account of them because the symbol of their dedication to God is on their head. Now would you read verse 8 out loud on your notes with me there. It says, all the days of his separation, he is holy to the Lord. As you can see here, a Nazarite was a man or woman who made a personal commitment to avoid three things. Again, if you're following on your notes, they were to avoid alcohol or honestly any grape product, cutting their hair, and death. 
Now let's break those three things down because, of course, the question is, why those three things? Well, wine, first of all, was the primary symbol of joy in the ancient world. So to do without great products for a time was a vivid commitment to turn away from life's normal pleasures. This was a vow to cease one of life's normal pleasures. Similarly, the Nazarites were not simply to let their hair grow. They were to grow it long without cutting it at all throughout the length of their vow. Unfortunately, that means that I could not be a Nazarite. Although this picture of me in college might say differently. But what is the hair thing all about, honestly? Well, because hair is a living part of a person's body, it was to be a symbol of the life of that person. To let your hair grow without restriction meant that you were giving your life completely over to God's keyword control. You were giving him control of your life. And then finally, the Nazarite could not be near death. Like a priest, he was holy to the Lord. And holiness is antagonistic to the impurity caused by death, which I remind you is something God never intended for us to experience. This is so serious that in verses 9 through 12, which we're not going to read, but you studied it this week if you're doing the Bible study, you can see that a Nazarite, even accidentally who comes in contact with the corpse, has to start their vow over. And so again, these three things have a bigger symbolic meaning to them. And if you're following on your notes, they symbolize pleasure, control, and contamination. These are the symbols of these three prohibitions. Now, something interesting here, each of these areas of separation were also regulated for the priests of Israel, though the priests actually had it in a less extreme way. And so this vow by the Nazarite was basically saying we're becoming temporary lay priests, someone who for a period of time lived according to a special level of purity and holiness, even above that of the priest. As you can see, this was a high calling. Now I'm going to have you skip down to verse 13, and we're going to read about the end of the vow and all that entails. I know it's going to get a little wordy, but just pay attention to how much it costs them to do this. Now this is the law of the Nazarite when the period of their dedication is over. They are to be brought to the entrance to the tent of meeting. There they are to present their offerings to the Lord, a year-old male lamb without defect for a burning offering, a year-old ewe lamb without defect for a sin offering, a ram without defect for a fellowship offering, together with their grain offerings and drink offerings, and a basket of bread made with the finest flour and without yeast, thick loaves with olive oil mixed in, and thin loaves brushed with olive oil. That was an expensive sacrifice. The priest is to present all these before the Lord and make the sin offering and the burnt offering. He is to present the basket of unleavened bread and is to sacrifice the ram as a fellowship offering to the Lord, together with its grain offering and drink offering. Now notice verse 18. Then at the entrance to the tent of meeting, the Nazarite must shave off the hair that symbolizes their dedication. They are to take the hair and put it in the fire that is under the sacrifice of the fellowship offering. Remember, their hair was symbolic of their lives. They're offering their lives to God. After the Nazarite has shaved off the hair that symbolizes their dedication, the priest is to place in their hands a boiled shoulder of the ram and one thick loaf and one thin loaf from the basket, both made without yeast. The priest shall then wave these before the Lord as a wave offering. They are holy and belong to the priest together with the breast that was waved and the thigh that was presented. After that, the Nazarite may drink wine. 
This is the law of the Nazarite who vows offerings to the Lord in accordance with their dedication, in addition to whatever else they can afford. They must fulfill the vows they have made according to the law of the Nazarite. As you can see there, the offerings of the Nazarite, if you're following on your notes, are expensive and express total devotion to God. I mean, they were expensive and they expressed total devotion to God. But friends, I don't want you to miss that. Among all the sacrifice, among all the expense, among all the separation, again, if you're following on your notes, at the completion of the vow, the Nazarite had a feast of celebration with God. They got to go to the entrance of the tent of meeting and they enjoyed a celebration at the conclusion of their vow. It would have been a time of great joy for them. Now, as we step back from this text, of course, we always want to ask the question, what does the Nazarite vow have to do with us as followers of Jesus today, living under the new covenant, which I'm glad we live under the new covenant, aren't you? Well, what can this teach us about our preparation and journey through the wilderness times of our life? Well, I just got to tell you, three things really stood out to me in this text And I'm going to spend the rest of our time together highlighting those with you as we consider our journey through this life. First, remember what the root word for Nazarite was? It comes from the word separation, someone who is set apart for a time as holy. Now, did you know that is exactly what Jesus does for every person who comes to him for salvation? Actually, not just for a time, he does it forever. And so observation number one for me in this text, if you're on your notes, is every Christian is set apart as holy by Jesus forever. At the moment of our salvation, we're told we literally become a new creation in Christ Jesus. This happened because God knew we were sinners and we could never set ourselves apart on our own. Even the Nazarite could not do it for life. And notice, even they had to bring a number of sacrifices to God. And so what did God do? He sent his son to atone for our sins and set us apart as holy once and for all. Now, you may be thinking, where in the world does it say that I am holy before God? There's all kinds of examples in the New Testament, but one of the ones I like the most is almost every time Paul starts one of his letters, he addresses the people there as saints. For example, look at the letter of Ephesians. He says, to the saints at Ephesus. Now, are you surprised to find Paul addressing the church at Ephesus as saints? Is Paul just talking to a super elite group of people in that church? Is he talking to people who are dead because aren't saints supposed to be dead? No, he's talking to every single member of that church. You see, in the New Testament, a saint is anyone who has trusted Jesus Christ as Savior. That word saint is actually similar to the word we get from Nazarite. It means sanctified, set apart. When a person trusts Christ as his or her Savior, he or she is immediately given a brand new identity and life. You and I have been set apart as holy forever. And so listen, if you've received Christ, if you realize Jesus died on your behalf, then your new identity is as a saint in Christ. This is because when God sees the follower of Jesus, he now sees his son in our place. And that means I've been made holy. You've been made holy and pure and righteous. You're a brand new person. You've been adopted into his family. You are redeemed. There's so much more, but that becomes our new identity in Christ. 
Now, I got to tell you, friends, one of the lies I believe for so long in my life is that even though I'd been saved by the cross, I still felt like a dirty, rotten sinner. God had maybe given me a eraser to forgive my sins, but those sins would keep popping back up and up and up. I fell so short. But it was when I finally learned what my true identity and how God sees me is that my life began to change. Yes, I still sin. I'm assuming you still do as well. But if you're following on your notes, the truth is God sees us as saints because we are in Christ. He doesn't see you or me as a saint because we took some special vow or because of our exemplary lives or because of any miracles that we've somehow performed. He sees us as saints because of what he has done once and for all. This, by the way, is why we call the gospel good news. He has made us brand new and that can never be taken away from us. Now what that means, which leads to the second thing I noticed in this text, is just like the Nazarite then, there are some things in this world that I want to avoid precisely because that is no longer who I am. My identity is now in Christ as his saint. And so why would I want to dirty that or ruin that or destroy that? I am set apart for his glory in this present world. And so here it comes. I either have the choice to merge with this world or I can stand out of this world just like the Nazarite. I can be a reminder to myself and to others of God's grace and power and salvation. In other words, we're called to be different. We're called to stand out. Paul puts it this way in Romans 12, verses 1, in the first part of verse 2, which I have on your notes there. Would you read it with me? Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I love that. What that means is because of God's mercy of making us his saints in Jesus, live differently than the world around us. But notice if you're following there, just like the Nazarite, following Jesus requires sacrifice and total devotion. Unlike the Nazarite who offered up his or her hair as a symbol of their lives, our calling is actually to offer up our lives. Sometimes that's going to mean forgoing some of the pleasures the world offers us like they did with the wine. Sometimes it means avoiding the things that may contaminate us. Friends, Jesus never denied the fact that following him would require sacrifice. He spoke plainly of what it meant to be a set-apart one and that it would require some hardship. For example, in Luke 9, 23, which is on the screen there, he says, he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. But as you know, as citizens of heaven, this world and Satan are going to tempt us to make this world our home. But it isn't. And that sometimes is going to require us to be different, live differently, stand out, deny ourselves, sacrifice ourselves for the sake of others. What I'm talking about here is, yes, morally, but also bigger than that. It might mean not watching the show. Everybody's watching on Netflix because it has inappropriate content. It might mean going against the flow of what this culture teaches us, that we should be grabbing everything we can get. Instead, we should be giving away our lives. It might mean standing up for injustices in this world, speaking out against them, being involved in some of those kinds of ministries. This is hard. If you're in school, you know it's hard. 
In your workplace, it's hard. In your neighborhoods, it's hard to stand out like this. When I was in high school, I was constantly made fun of and laughed at by my friends because I told them I was saving myself for marriage. That was not easy as a 16-year-old to kind of get this kind of constant ridicule about those things. But let me just say to you, I hope you know, Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth it. And the journey, even though it's hard through the wilderness sometimes, will lead us to something better. This is why our vision here at Cherry Hills is we want to give ourselves fully to Jesus and his mission. We're not going to get around the bush. Following Jesus is an all-in thing. You're all in. It requires obedience to his word, obedience to his mission, to love others the way that he has loved us. He gave us his life. Now that leads to the third thing I noticed, which goes back to verse 2 of our text, which I'll remind you says, if a man or woman wants to make a special vow. Now that word want is the key word in this whole passage, in my opinion. Again, it wasn't a demand. It's not a law. It was an invitation. And it leads me to the question, who in their right mind would want to become a Nazarite with all that it required? I mean, why would somebody want to do this? Who would choose to do this extreme of a thing? And the answer to that is honestly quite simple. A person would do this because they love God, period. They would do it because they love God. In the same way, my third observation about how this relates to our lives, if you're following, obedience to Jesus is from a heart of want to, not have to. Is that what you think of obedience? Be honest. Or are God's rules and regulations and restrictions, unfair oppression or burdens that we have to carry, are they things to ignore or things to find loopholes in? Or do you want to follow him fully because you really do trust in his character and you believe God's way of life is the passport to freedom and intimacy with him? It's a better life. And the journey is a better journey when we see obedience as a want to. Honestly, if I had to narrow down my top three things I would want every follower of Jesus to understand, this would be on that list. You see, for the believer who understands their identity as one who is set apart by Jesus to be holy in this world, obedience becomes a want to, not a have to. If it's not a want to, listen, then that quite honestly, you're still living under the law and don't fully understand the gospel. Let me say that to you again. If obedience is a have to, you're still living under the law and you don't understand the gospel. Paul reminds us in Romans 12.1, which is there on your notes, I want to go back to it. We're told it's because of God's mercy that we are to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. I do it out of an act of love. I've told you my story dozens of times. I accepted Christ at a young age, but I was still living under the law. I still believed I had to prove myself, prove my new identity to God, but I never measured up to it. I didn't fully understand the gospel. Friends, the person who took the Nazarite vow did it because they wanted to. They looked forward to the day of its completion when they would present their sacrifices to the Lord, including their hair, which represented their lives, and join with God in a feast of celebration. And listen, because the whole Bible points to Jesus, here's what I want to remind you of, brothers and sisters in Christ. One day, we all too will approach Jesus. 
And if we've journeyed through this wilderness with courage and faithfulness, guess what? We will stand before him and get this, he will invite us into a feast of celebration. In the New Testament, it's called the wedding supper of the lamb. And even better, there will be no priest there mediating between us. He will welcome us into his presence with open arms. This feast is paid for not by our sacrifices, but by Jesus' perfect sacrifice in our place on his death on a cross. Jesus has completed his time of suffering and obedience and has now returned to his father's side in glory. He is seated there right now planning the menu for this feast. And that means, at least for me, there will be sushi there. And he is setting the table for us right now, waiting for our arrival. There's definitely going to be some joy on that day. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2.9, you can see it on the screen. What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God prepared for those who love him. On that day, I guarantee you, no one will ever think they gave up too much for Jesus. On the contrary, all of our earthly trials and sufferings and sacrifices will seem like light momentary affliction, 2 Corinthians 4.17, in comparison to the glories that await us in our promised land. Remembering that such a feast awaits us gives us what I would call an eternal perspective that will help us to live courageously, to live faithfully on the journey that God has plotted out for us in this world. And so as I close, let me just ask you, consider this seriously. Don't just fill it in as a blank on your page. Do I want to live as a set-apart one in this world? Do you want that? Do you want to live as a set-apart one in this world? If you do, Jesus says to you even now, come, follow me, and I will lead you home. Let's pray. Father, what good news it is that we live under the new covenant of your love a covenant that was bought and paid for by the sacrifice of your son, a covenant that promised us that we are new people in Jesus Christ. We are your saints and holy and pure, that you have set us apart in this world. Because you have done that, because of God's mercy, we want to offer our lives as a living sacrifice to you, holy and pleasing. Help this to become a want to and not a have to. Lead us through the wilderness so that one day we can join you in the feast that you're preparing even now. Help us to live with that perspective in mind now and forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information or to stay connected to Cherry Hills Church, please visit our website at cherryhillsfamily.org or follow us on Facebook.